I kind of want to ask a big question. To kick it off? I want to ask a big question. Mike, Michael, can I ask a big question? Sure. What's the next crash? Commercial real estate. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty convinced of that. And I actually think it's it's already started. I mean, as a, as a general rule, it takes 12 to 18 months after an asset peaks for people to even notice. But very clearly, offices in New York City, multifamily, the renters listening, I would be hanging on. And I speak as a New York City landlord. I've been a New York City landlord for 25 years, so I've seen a lot of ups and downs. This is this is now a renter's market in, in both offices and multifamily. And the development cycle, you know, is about to dump a ton of new product onto markets which are already saturated. So I, I think that might be a big question. It's not, it's not the hardest one. I feel we should just stop the podcast and, and run I'm, out of I gotta here. I got to go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly look at the big picture of technology, not at the big picture of the whole world. Well, it's a big, bigger picture. It's that's a lot. Yeah, that's true. And oh. you have to look at a lot of different things. You have to, uh, yeah. It's yeah. not just, you got to think about like corn. Yeah. We don't think about corn that much. We no. think about like JavaScript. Starvation. Where to find good designers. Those are, yeah. Whales eating plastic bags. That's right. That's right. We think that's about the big that. big shit. Yeah. And so um, our next, uh, our, our, the person we're talking to today. Mm-hmm. Um, is someone who thinks about the entire global economy on a day-to-day basis. And all of the sort of inputs, it's craziness because there's a, there's endless inputs, right? So this person is looking at not just price of oil, but also political climate and Honestly, all we, of it. It's we were crazy. Not, we're not the ones to talk about it. No, let's no, we don't him, know anything. Let's, let's let, let him, him talk, talk about it. Yeah. Michael Shaul, welcome to Track Changes. Thank you. We corresponded very briefly. You, you saw something I wrote about the blockchain, and you said, uh, I'm very focused on business cycles, and that just made my brain light up. What do you do, and how did you come to be focused on business cycles as a professional focus? Yeah, yeah I guess those are two, two questions. I mean, what I do is, is run a mutual fund called Marketfield, Marketfield Asset Managements for Company. And we're famous, and I guess when we're bad, infamous for, for following cycles and, and trying to work out what happens next. How I ended up doing this, I, I've had a you know, very varied career. I started off as an academic. I actually have a doctorate in, in philosophy I went overnight from being a philosophy person to a New York City landlord that was involved in, in the post-crash in the early 1990s. And then in the mid-1990s, I ended up moving from real estate to Wall Street. Once I moved to Wall Street, I, I sort of found myself going back to my philosophical roots and starting to understand that there was always a narrative around markets, but the dominant narrative, in other words, the one that you look at when you pick up the newspaper or, or now listen to on, on, on television or radio, often bears very little resemblance to what is actually happening. So to losing a great deal of money in the end of the first tech bubble, I began to understand that my guts were worth listening to second time around and, and, and really focused on cycles from that point onwards. Confession. The term cycles, at first it landed positively for me. Like, oh, cool. Cycles, like when the sun goes up and come goes down, and then, but it always comes back around again. But explain what you mean by cycles. 
Well, you know, I, I think ideas have cycles and beliefs have cycles. I, I think as human beings, we are prone to ignore certain things and, and then start noticing them and start obsessing about them and believing that situations are never going to end. And, and then it's kind of on the way down again. I mean, you ask a good question, much harder question than the first one, actually, because there's, there are multiple cycles that you learn to pay attention to. And one of the things I say is that that when you look at cycles across decades or or, or centuries or different asset classes, you know, what I say is that the nouns and the verbs are always changing. It's always something different, but the adjectives and the adverbs stay the same. In other words, the emotions attached to a cycle, you start to become very, you know, you start to become very familiar with. Is there a way to know where you are in the middle of a cycle. Like, I mean, you have a macro view. I feel that with the first dot-com wave, that that tech bubble, I was pretty young, and I just felt relatively whiplashed. I had no idea what was going on around me, except for one day when I went to a party thrown by Yahoo, and they had a fake volcano. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a str- I was like, okay, all right, this is over. Hold on, what's spewing out of the volcano? Like sort of fake lava. It just oh, okay, had, like, not it just- chocolate. No. Okay. It might have been. I don't remember. I just remember like <laughs> this is an unusual signal to be sending. Right. There's a volcano at the party. I need to start making some decisions about my life. So that was that's that is the the my economic ability outline. Yeah, record. look, I, I that's what I mean by listening to, you know, to your guts. When mm-hmm. when things are too good to be true, they normally are. So it's very difficult. You can understand, I think, when you are in the middle of a a great bull market, a great cycle. Clearly, we're here in the middle of a great technology cycle. When it's gone over its skis, when it's no longer investable, when it's outright dangerous, is a is a hard thing to to notice. But if I went back to the early 1990s, I mean, language starts to change, valuation metrics start to change. You start valuing eyeballs rather than than revenue. Oh, so people start to kind of rearrange reality to suit the thesis. Yeah, and that's what I mean. The adjectives and the adverbs start to change. And I, the most dangerous part is when you're told it's permanent. I mean, we're seeing that with blockchain stuff right now, although it's on the slide right now. But for yes. but for about a year, um, there's been this narrative, which to me I have found almost comic because I lived through it with the first dot com, where it's just infinite upside. Yes, know? yes. I, I, I actually was at a dinner at a friend's house who is involved in, in real estate, and he turned around to me and asked me how I was going to explain to my children that I had not invested in Bitcoin. And this was coming off the back for me of my, my best year in, in financial markets in ages. And I, I told him what I'd done in the market. I'm like, I don't think I need to apologize to my children for not owning Bitcoin. But to me, that's what the end of one of these investment cycles looks like. You you look like a moron for having not put an indiscriminate amount of cash to work in the space. And, you know, and, and, and everybody on the outside is kind of laughing at you and trying to pull you in. So, which is very seductive, right? I mean, this is very this sounds seductive. like a successful person on the yes, other yes, side. Yes, yes, yes. He's not not an, an, an intelligent man, but but had certainly drunk the uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin Kool Aid. But tapping you on the back and saying, "Michael, what are you doing?" I, I wouldn't have minded if I'd lost money that year, but I I, I, I went <laughs> I went to that dinner feeling I'd had it was late December. I thought I'd had an excellent year, and you leave losing a loser. So I'll, 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 I'll tell you a I'll tell you, you a true story. Could have done sto- better, Michael. So I'll, I'll tell you a true story. Uh, in the day after the Nasdaq peaked in two thousand. Uh, the firm I ran used to have a fiscal year, which was February 28th, because we were too cheap to pay the accountants for, for December 31st. <laughs> so we used to do our employee reviews beginning of March. And I sat with one of my favorite employees and I did his review and I explained 
what I was going to pay him. And he kind of looked a bit unhappy. And I go, look, what's wrong? And he was telling me about all his friends who were working in technology and how much money they were making and how he feels like a failure. And I said to him, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm the number two person in a small New York Stock Exchange member firm, and I feel like a failure too. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, that, all that tells me is we must be near the end because I know objectively I'm I'm not a failure. I've, I'm 33 years old and I've had a successful career to this point, but that's what, what the end of cycles feel like. And you know, when I read your article on blockchain, one of the things that really kind of brought it home to me because you were going back and talking about the late 1990s is how little fun is had towards the end of a cycle. Oh, it's I mean, it's just good. miserable. Oh. You know, it's like there's nothing new, you know, there's nothing genuinely creative going on. It's all about the bottom line or the top line. Everybody's expectations go beyond what is possible. It's just a lot of stress and aggravation and good luck keeping employees. And really humiliating mergers is what yeah. I remember just for being part of like a 300 person company and then it would sort of squeeze in with another one and like they'd add an exclamation point to the end of the name. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes there'd be like a little sliver of IP and they just unload everyone. Oh yeah. And just keep the little yeah, cute and, and, thing and, that they and, grab. And, you know, I, there is something very real too about the number of people when you're doing okay, who will show up to tell you that you're doing it wrong is yep. shocking. Like we, we experienced this, this firm is doing fine. We're doing okay. And the number of people who are ready to come in, sit across from a table and tell me that I need to pay them in order for them to fix what's wrong. Yeah. Is legion. You can do it better is yeah. often the... Which is, it? I mean, obviously we can. Right? Yeah. But everybody thinks you're an idiot. And then you look at how things coaching. are going. Yeah. The word coaching starts to kick in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But look, <laughs> like, all, of it's, all of it can be real. It's just, but there is that fundamental assumption, like your friend who is just like, well, you know, no Bitcoin. You've, you've let your children down. Right. And your, your children are just fine. They'll probably yell at you, but for other reasons. Absolutely. They're, it's true. You're, you're, they're never going to take you aside and be like, big need to talk. Exactly. <laughs> for the first parts of my career in technology, I felt that technology was always kind of chasing the economy. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a steady state now. The things that we're building are similar to the things we built a few years ago. And I think in a few more years, we'll be building sort of solid platforms. Some of the languages will be different. Some of the ways you access them will be different. But like measures of code quality, sense of overall design, things that we do all day about cutting risks and making platforms, I don't think that's changing that much. They're pretty constant. That's right. It's pretty durable. If you do it right, they're quite durable. It used to be, I think, just less of a discipline. And increasingly, we've got this discipline of technology that obviously when times are up, people come to us and ask us to build more things. But overall, I think year to year, if you ask me what I'm going to be doing five years from now, it's it's not going to be shockingly different from where we are. We're going to be building platforms and thinking about how to, you know, cut risk and do it faster and have fewer bugs, but it's it's going to be like this. You may have moved to Argentina, right? but you're still doing the same thing. You think it'll be like that in 100 years? I think it's going to be kind of the it's same. It's different. Yeah. No, you're going to have like modules and you'll plug them in. You'll Somebody's pr- pitching that AI will write its write the software. The so- There's software that's going to write the software, they started, but I don't think it works They've been like talking that. about that since I was seven years old. I mean, yeah. it's just like that narrative never ends. Yeah. I think you need be- good, thoughtful people that care about craft to write the software, to build the experience, not That's just right. write the software, make but design your own, and build that beautiful thing. Make your own damn economic cycle is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that, that always works out great. Anyway, look, hello at postlight.com. Let's get back to Michael talking about the big picture. 
when I think of funds, I think of a blend of stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's like when you go to a buffet, you got to, even though you don't really want the anchovies, you're like, oh, whatever. It's, you know it's, what it is? it's, it's on it's, the buffet. You know what it is? It's the shrimp. The shrimp. You're always going to have some so, shrimp. I mean, Michael, you must have bought some shrimp just a little bit on the side, even though you might not eat it. You must have some Bitcoin in your fund. Otherwise, I think it's fundamentally irresponsible. <laughs> well, fortunately, fortunately, I'm, I'm lucky. Bitcoin never became an equity and, and so became hard to buy and illiquid. So We're I, I, all I, lucky. I, I wouldn't say that professionally I felt a great deal of pressure to be involved. But obviously, I had a large number of questions from Right. Clients and investors that know me about what I would, you know, what I would do about it. I always say to people, it's okay to do something stupid and reckless with your money as long as you follow two rules. One is you put a small amount of money rather than a large amount of money in it, and number two, that you remember you're doing something stupid and reckless. And the mistake people make is that they think that they found the answer and they overcommit, and uh, you know, the eyes it gets get ugly. wide. Yeah. Well, this is, I, you know, the people we know who are very into blockchain, who are kind of rational about it, basically are like, yeah, you're going to the track. See what happens. But yeah, you don't you don't put your kid's college fund. Right. Okay. I'm very glad you're here because I get to ask a question I've wanted to ask for years, which is, as someone who runs a mutual fund, what do you do all day? We're macro-driven. So I, I sit around, I, I look at the data that's come out, and then I spend an awful lot of time just reading stuff. And I've always found that the most useful because what I'm trying to do is get the temperature of where the cycle is on a real-time basis. Even if I'm not reacting to it, I like to be constantly involved by what is being written, what's being emphasized, what's being de-emphasized. What is it that people have wrong in the narrative and what is it that should be in the narrative that hasn't hasn't got in there yet? Which is how I read your article in the first place. So that was on the Bloomberg Terminal, right? Sure, sure. Okay, I li- so, yeah, I live on the terminal. So you're on the terminal. Yeah. Okay. And then here's a question. Then how something catches your eye. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Do you write it in the notebook? Is it like do you send an email? What do you do? I have the terminal, so obviously it's Bloomberg News, but but what I have is the raw news feed, which which has hundreds and hundreds of news wires. Right. So I, you know, I literally have the world's news scrolling past my eyes in real time. And if I ever see something interesting, I click on it, and I probably read two, three hundred stories a day. I don't necessarily finish them all, but I'm constantly clicking on something which I think is interesting. And you know, a lot of it's nonsense and garbage or sport. But some of it's to do with, you know, I guess most of it's to do with the economy in some way whatsoever. If it's really interesting, I might email it out. I might send it to someone. I might, as you say, jot it down in a notebook. You know, I, I am lucky that I have a really an excellent memory. And the terminal itself makes it relatively easy to go back and find something that you looked at. Um, but that altogether sort of forces me to make a, you know, just to have a constant view on what I think is, is, is going on. All right. So we have, let's say, 300 unique data points enter into your brain through mm-hmm. your eyes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you write things down. Sometimes you're, you're in meetings. You're having conversations with people. How do those 300 data points, obviously, they have to be synthesized. And can, we they, talk, can we just say that's a lot? That is a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of news. I, I read a lot. I, read I a mean, lot. I imagine the lunch bowl mm. just in front of the keyboard. Like you didn't go out. Uh, uh, yeah, no, you know, I, I, I do take a break for lunch. I, I, I actually have a desk and a table. So I do make a point, partly for this reason. First of all, I like to leave the office for lunch, even if it's for two minutes. And then I eat lunch away from the terminal because otherwise it's all over the place. <laughs> Um, But otherwise, yeah, I mean, I'm on the telephone talking to people. I'm constantly reading, you know, stories. It's a lot. So how do I synthesize it? Partly through the discipline of writing. I've been writing daily and weekly stuff now for for years. 
And I, 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 people say, well, how do you have enough time to write if you're like reading and talking to people? I'm like, I, I, unless I write something, I don't know what I understand. And, and, and it's that discipline of a blank piece of paper or, or a blank screen and typing away that, that forces you to decide what you actually care about and what doesn't really matter. And it's strange. I mean, I, I finish writing and I very rarely look at it again. And, and sometimes I remember once picking up a newspaper, reading some guy's comments, thinking, wow, he's on the same track as me. This is scary how similar his ideas are. And I made a point of looking who'd written it, and it was myself being quoted. So that's how, I mean, <laughs> at, least, at least I'm not schizophrenic, but that's how sort of oddly distant I can be with something sure. I've written two or three days later. But that, that's really the discipline that I use. Now, is this a, like a, a memo that you're going to email? And uh, I, I, I publish my weekly thoughts on markets daily daily commentary is is kind of more dry and is just mm-hmm. simply about you know data that's coming and whether it matters or not but i i you know put together a sort of chatty weekly piece you know maybe you know 2000 1500 words long or so just saying look this is what's happened in the last week and uh, this is why it matters or this is why it doesn't and that goes out to the world to... It goes out, you know, we probably have a few thousand readers who have either been investors of a fund or are investors of a fund. You know, we have a pretty wide swathe of the financial media, you know, that get it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people find it useful. And when we're talking macro, yep. does macro mean <sighs> currency exchange? Does it mean the healthcare industry? Like where, where does you know, it... It's a, it's, it's a funny term. It's like saying, what does technology mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very broad term. So the way we look at it is we think that at any given point in time, there are things which are worth focusing on. Obviously, I'll always talk about the S&P 500 in my job because that's the starting point for whether it's been a good week or a bad week as far as most people are concerned. But we'll focus on a on a particular sector. If we think it's really in motion and, and there's really something happening that people aren't paying attention to and ignore things that might be interesting, but we feel that uh, you know, 25 other people have already written about them. I don't necessarily need to be the 26th person who says the obvious. And so commercial real estate, you feel, is there's there's going to be distress in that marketplace. So what do you do? You know, I think a much harder question is kind of where is technology right now? A much more, you know, commercial real estate's a bit part as far as the equity market's concerned. It's a, it's a big asset, but it's tiny compared to where, where technology is. Now, when you say tech, are you thinking sort of the big four and five, uh, like you know, your Googles and your Facebooks? or You do have to split this up, yes. To have the, have the valuations of those four, five, ten companies peaked, you know, it's possible they could peak and that some of the more established large technology companies that were dominant in the last cycles, the Intels and the Cisco's and the Microsoft's, could take on the baton of leadership as far as technology is concerned. Not Cisco. Not Cisco. <laughs> We've had Wi-Fi issues <laughs> <Yeah>. recently. <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft is always a surprising one because it, it, it still blows my mind they pull in the revenue they pull in. Oh, it's so much. Just, it's, it's SQL Server, man. It's is that just, what? I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's it's odd to me, like maybe because personally, I'm, I'm I open Google Docs to put notes down instead of Word, but it just still blows my mind. It's still massive amounts. Of I think money. they're good now. I think they're well led, and I think they know what they're doing, even if we don't. A lot, my interaction with them is to buy the three dollar keyboard, the swipe keyboard for my my phone. Well, I'm like this, this is not going to cut it, Microsoft. You got a lot of money at stake here. I, maybe it's it's probably deeply personal. So I have a related slash unrelated question. Mm-hmm. There are new factors now, right? What did Facebook lose in value over the last- $100 billion. Is it that much? There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money. 
And technology is seeping into, or the world is seeping into the value that, you know, the, the formulas around valuing technology that come from really dramatically different places. We clarify that a little like bit. Like foreign policy and oh, right. security and just all kinds of, th- I mean, if you had told me 15 years ago that global geopolitics would affect Microsoft Excel. Well, sure. Or that I or it that, was walled in. We were fine. Well, I just now we had have a, a lot of European regulation that's affecting Europe, the way Europe's that Europe's more Google sensitive works. to it. That's right. right. So you've got and, and Microsoft itself was heavily regulated at the end of the last technology that's cycle. Right. Right. I mean, that's it right. was it was for poster child for antitrust, yeah. you know, you know, antitrust right. efforts. So this is look, these are the this is the price of success. And this is how, again, What's fascinating about cycles are they end in a very different place to where they begin. And obviously, in terms of valuations and money, that's the case. But in terms of what the actual companies are, how they actually react, what their status in society, you know, are. And, and you know, this is a very different place. And you go back 15 years ago and you remember what a joke technology had become and how uncool Microsoft was. The fascinating thing about Microsoft is it's nearly a trillion dollar company and it never actually got cool again. I mean, I wasn't surprised to hear you say, I don't, I'm not sure how. <laughs> Yeah. How they did? No, it. I've come to it. accept it. But yeah. the ribbon is so like an outlook. I know, but there's they, too many buttons. Now you know they're they're getting they're going in another direction. You can down like Visual Studio Code is open source and a very good code editor, and yeah. it's good and it runs on everything. But open source is not. This is just you getting sentimental. No, now. this is like me going. This is me as someone who's writing some code again, going like, "Wow, this is a pretty good tool." I, but I there's no money. It. I know, but that's okay because it made me go like, you know, maybe Microsoft is, maybe the, Microsoft's okay. Or is regulation an indicator of a cycle ending? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, regulatory cycles are just an- another one of these sort of overlays. It's almost like you have these acetates with different cycles on them and you put them on top of each other. But yeah, no, regulation has its own cycle. So, you know, what, what tends to happen is regulation fixes the old problem. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the markets tend to, you know, I think, for instance, if we talk about Facebook, if, if they change their business model radically, it's more likely going to be because they're absolutely terrified that advertisers and users are going to disappear than the actual laws drafted by the European Union or or Congress. Facebook at this point is is, is basically saying, go ahead and regulate, right? I mean, they're they're willing to deal with it. They've said it. Yeah. They've actually said it. But regulation, yes, it it follows success and, and particularly oligopolistic success. Sure. I mean, people are less terrified by a hundred companies than five companies becoming successful in the same sphere. I do get the sense that there's a, almost a lot of sine waves overlapping in your brain at any given time. Like it's just yes. cycles, cycles on top of cycles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess my subconscious is obsessed with cycles. I, consciously, I'm not quite that bad, but subconsciously, yes. Is it like a doctor where you go to a party and people ask you for stock tips? People do talk to me about cycles. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say something and, and someone will say, well, did you really mean that? So, yeah, and certainly my, my real estate friends, um, I think, are becoming aware. I mean, I tried, I don't try and sort of put it out there. If I met someone who was involved in commercial real estate, I wouldn't say, God, I hate your industry right now. There's no upside in being a jerk. And, and even if you're right about a cycle, it takes months and months and months, if not quarters and quarters and quarters to really be proved out. So, you know, why fight it along the way? Well, I don't really, I have to go away and process. This is a lot. 
It is a lot. This is great, though. Yeah. What is the, if someone wants to read and think cyclically, where, where do they go? What do they do? You know, I think it's good to read about past cycles because, you know, even if, as I say, even if the players change and the, the technology changes, it's always the same story. So there's a great book about the 1960s, The Go-Go Years mm-hmm. by John Brook. Yeah, that, that's a great book about cycles. Is he the person who wrote Business Adventures? Yes, yeah, yes. great. That's, I a, love that's him. A, Business Adventures, another great, mm-hmm. another, another great book. Kindleberger wrote The History of of panics and 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 crashes and and, and manias. It's, it's one book. If you like really heavy, weighty tomes, a history of interest rates. I gave that to a good young analyst once, and she resigned a week later. But but and <laughs> you know, I think all the fiction written in around uh, you know Gatsby is still to me a great book about cycles. I mean, it's it, it could only get written at that point in time. So you know, that's a, that's another cycle on top of everything else. Is there one sector or subsector? It just, it doesn't break. It just keeps going and going and going. And yeah, it, it waves. It has waves, but there's no snap. I can't think of a sector which has gone up for decades. I mean, certainly for years, you can you can have cycles last a decade like this one. But I I, I can't. F- you know, but shoes. I, I mean, is shoes. Am I am I going? Well, too I mean, obviously shoes. We've look. There are plenty of things we've continued to use. But and, uh, and but, val- but, but, but for fashion itself is deeply cyclical. The short answer is I can't think of maybe maybe a listener's going to call me an idiot, but I can't think of something that wasn't cyclical. For a guy who thinks about cycles, I think I'm an optimist. I, I, I do believe uh, every good cycle comes to an end and is followed by a bad cycle, but I do think generally you get another chance. And I think that's the difference between the Michael Shaul of today and 20 years ago. I was more cynical 20 years ago. I saw that technology was just a joke by 99-2000. I probably got negative too early, and I wasn't surprised that it blew up. But, you know, the fascinating thing is it, it came back and by 07, I was like, you know, all this nonsense about innovation, all this stuff I was told was going to happen five, six, seven, eight years ago, maybe was just ahead of itself. And I think that's that's most of what happens to humanity. We're, we're not totally stupid. We just get too optimistic towards the end and too too pessimistic at the bottoms. Well, Michael Scholl, thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank you. It's been great. Great. Dude... I like thinking about things from the International Space Station level. It's really fun. It's humbling is another word I'd use. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't you have know a, shit. You don't know anything. You really do have a lot of fantasies of control in your life, especially like we right. run a company, so we get to pretend that we control something. Right. That, you know, we're going to set the vision here and yeah. things are going to... First of all, it doesn't really work that way. You no. kind of go like, hey, you know, I think what would be good? And people are like, mm, maybe. Yeah. And then you, you sort of build a company out of that. Well, that. That illusion kind of keeps us alive to some extent, but yes. Yeah. No, you don't I mean, have the control you think you do. No. People, the residents of Miami think they control Miami, but that's it's right. sinking. No, and it's it's the ocean that controls Miami. Exactly. I think that's, that's what was fun about talking to Michael, is that's somebody who's kind of like, boy, I don't really have the power to move all these levers, but I can at least understand what's happening. Yeah. And I can do it by reading 36,000 articles a day. That was cool. Just pumping. That is intense. Attaching a pipe to Bloomberg Terminal and just inserting it into your mouth. That's the future of our industry. (laughs) On that note, hello at postlight.com is how you get in touch with us. Uh If you want to build something really solid, something that can help you weather the cycles, whether they're up or whether they're down, we can build you something that's going to be there and run and work for 
years. Even some of the software you built, some of the software I built is still running I've, a decade later. I've coded software that's running in production almost 20 years. Yeah. I don't know if I'm proud of that or scared of that. I just, every time I see those people, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Completely irresponsible. <laughs> it is irresponsible. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. Hello at postlight.com. Talk to you soon.